A lot of you have asked me where I went to school or got training to be a sex educator. The answer is ICE, Institute for Sex Education and Enlightenment. If you do not need to be ASECT certified, then try their new program called SWEET, Sexual Wellness Education and Enlightenment Training. It's about half the price of their regular program, and it's for people who don't need to be licensed by ASECT, but have the interest or want to add fullness to their personal or professional lives or careers. You can do it at your own pace because it's all on demand. You can do it from anywhere in the world. If you have weird hours like me, then maybe you want to do class at 3 a.m., you can even take one learning path at a time to make it more manageable financially. So go to instituteforsexuality.com and click on their on-demand programs where you can check out their other classes too. Welcome back to They Talk Sex podcast. I'm your host, Elle Stanger. I'm an ASEX certified sex educator and a longtime adult entertainment uh, industry worker and sex worker. Today, we're going to be talking about ethics and sexuality. This is the ethics and sexuality episode. Welcome to season two. And my guest today is Margaret King. Hello, Margaret. Hi, Elle. Hi. Margaret is a licensed professional counselor in Portland. She specializes in working with trauma. She uses a modality called brain spotting. Margaret uses mindfulness-based practices and parts work with her clients. She feels very passionate about incorporating social justice and anti-capitalism and body positivity and sex positivity into her work. She's a supporter of decriminalization of sex work. Thank you. Margaret is interested in exploring how certain areas of professionalism can put mental health care clinicians in sticky situations. So, Margaret, the best ways to contact you is at attunementpsychotherapy at gmail.com or at your website, attunementpsychotherapy.com. All right. How long have you been a LPC? So I actually, I got licensed um, during the pandemic. So in 2020, but I've been practicing since 2017. Um, It's, yeah, it's been a wild ride. (laughs) Oh gosh, I'm sure. So when we talk about ethics, what does ethics mean? So I just went to good old the internet. Uh, A couple definitions are moral principles that govern a person's behavior or the conducting of an activity. Um, because my ethics might be totally different than your ethics and a lot of everybody has different things they hold important. So what do we mean when we say ethics? We're going to try to break it down and give some clear examples of how some things can hurt people. And I think we can draw some pretty simple conclusions about guiding principles that will reduce that hurt. So you gave an example, um, and this is something I had never thought about, but like, a different uh, therapist, they had talked about what is appropriate if they are at, say, like a kinky event, say they're being spanked or flogged or there's a scene happening and one of their clients is there. Is it ethical to sexually interact with that client? And their answer was no. But if you're both at the event, 
do you just avoid each other or if they come talk to you, like, do you tell them like you can't talk to them or what is appropriate? So what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I think that's an incredibly important area to explore. And, you know, as I talk about this, I'm still working through my belief systems and the case by case situations that might occur. Um, I would say personally, I mean, I can speak personally and with, you know, Well, let me back that up. Actually, so the American Counseling Association has certain ethics and guidelines that we as licensed therapists have to follow, right? Or we could be in, you know, not good standing with the ethics board. We could get um, our license potentially revoked so we could lose our license to practice um, if we're found, you know, in violation of of certain ethics that are, you know, depending on the situation that could happen. Um, so there's that piece. And then personally, I would, I would remove myself from the situation. If a client, if I were in a kink space or an openly sexual space and a client of mine, either current or past, I would remove myself. Um, that's also like leave, yeah, leave the event, I would leave or go to a the event because Ethically speaking, our goal is to protect our clients. So, yeah, it, it might mm. suck for me to miss out on that event or, you know, have my Friday night, you know, go a different way. But at the end of the day, my client's sense of safety and comfort is of utmost importance in that moment. When you say protect your client, for some people that might not understand what that means, like, is that maybe witnessing you in a sexual situation could be confusing or upsetting for them? Or like if you're doing something that it might trigger some feelings? Yeah, I think that that's definitely part of it. And if I were to witness my client engaging in some sexual activity, that might make them uncomfortable. Um Yeah. So it could really, especially if I'm working with that client currently, it could really change the dynamic of the relationship that we have. Mm -hmm. Um, I mean, Mm -hmm. just to put it into context, the ethics board says we aren't even supposed to say hi to clients in public first. Like if I see someone walking Mm -hmm. down the street um, who's my client, I am not supposed to say, hey, so-and-so. They're welcome to say Mm -hmm. hi to me first. I always tell them that in the informed consent portion of my intake sessions that, hey, Portland can feel small sometimes. I have run into clients in the world that might happen. Mm -hmm. I'm not going to say hi to you first because I want to protect your confidentiality. You're Mm. welcome to say hi to me, but you don't have to. That's so funny because so as a sex educator, I, I know that I would certainly. But it's funny because how I started practicing that. Um, was just being a sex worker. It's like, obviously, if I see and usually it's sex workers want to protect themselves. And that's definitely the case, too. But like, I've seen like clients out with like their wives or their families mm-hmm. or their children. And I do not say <laughs> hi, because who's that? Yes. You know, yes. It's very similar. Right. 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 Yeah, that's so great. So I, I think um, that's like an element of we talk about like outing people sometimes. Mm-hmm. And there's still such a, a stigma to like going to therapy or going to a sex worker, going to a counselor. Um, and also if people want to share that, that's their right to share that because sharing that info can put people in danger or like under scrutiny. Right. Some people's families are still very suspicious of therapy and counseling <laughs> or, you know, sex work. Like, why? What's wrong with you? Why do you need to yeah, do that? Absolutely. <laughs> There's parallels here I'm finding. Um, okay. So I asked 
Thank you for those examples. And it's actually been so long since I did my intake with my therapist. It's been like eight years. I feel like we had that conversation. Uh, good yeah. reminder. So I asked uh, my social media followers, I am, let's, I don't know if I'm still on there by the time this episode comes out, but I just got on TikTok. That might be a total mistake, but I'm LOL 69420 because would you believe it? Stripper writer and L Stanger were taken not by real people. Somebody took like registered oh, the man. names. Yeah. Someone's oh, cock blocking me God. for sure. They're, they're like, at you. Haters. Wow. I know, I know. Report those accounts, people. Anyway, um, so you can find me at Stripper Writer on Instagram, perhaps, or my website, lstanger.com. That one should exist forever. I paid for adult hosting. Thank you. Fuck you, Zuck. <laughs> so I asked folks who follow me on these platforms, what are your personal ethics you practice regarding sexuality? All right, so I'm going to read. Feel free to react. We can react here as long as we're not shaming, which, of course, you never would. Someone says, I don't have sex unless I am actually in the mood. Awesome. I think that sounds like really a lot of self-love and healthy boundaries right there. Mm-hmm. Um, someone says, I never judge or react with disgust. Beautiful. Yeah. I mean, everyone's going to have mm-hmm. different desires and needs. And I think it's important to hold space for people's different kinks and desires without shaming them. Mm-hmm. Someone else says, I make sure everything is clean before I hook up with someone. My body, especially hands and mouth, because I'm a smoker and the furniture slash rooms. That's a very nice, mindful thing to do. Some people don't have the preference and some people don't have the means to tidy up or, or be so clean. But at the very least, folks, we have to wash our hands. If you're going to be fingering someone. Yeah, seems like seems like ba- basic courtesy that kind of gets swept under the rug, right? <laughs> yeah, or not swept right. under the rug. No pun intended. Someone else says, "I never assume anyone's orientation or preferences." Beautiful. I, I'm like loving that because um, that just like I don't know that that just feels really open and um, yeah, not making assumptions is always a great way to you know make someone feel safe and mm-hmm. and turned on. <laughs> mm-hmm. Oh, this is related to it. It says, I'm straight passing. I like to disclose I'm a queer to men I date. I do that. I let them know. I like very, very right away. If they can. I'm like, I am not straight. So, and many of my friends are not either. And that's got to be like absolutely not any issue at all. <laughs> Part of my screen process. Yeah, I was just going to say, I mean, totally. Like I th- screening people that you're about to have sex with or going on a date with, I think is a, is smart. I mean, you're you're making sure that this person shares the same values as you or will accept you for who you are and that you'll feel safe being who you are when you're having sex with that person. Mm-hmm. Someone else says, ideally, I discuss STIs ahead of time. If not, then still after. That's fair. Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, we're not perfect. Ideally, we would have that conversation before we engage in sex with someone. But again, we're not perfect. And as long as the conversation is being had and there's disclosure there, I think that that's great. Mm-hmm. Definitely. Uh, let's see what else we got. Someone else says STI testing. Someone says... I ask myself, do I trust this person to be able to hear, quote, can we try it this way? And if not, will they take it personally? 
if I believe they'll take it personally, then no, I don't engage with them. Mm. That's yeah. a good one. Yeah, sounds le- legitimate. I think having having those ways that you get your needs met and test for what feels safe and who your partner really is deep down, I think that's all fair game. Mm-hmm. One that comes up a lot is like asking people to use condoms. People are afraid to ask people to use condoms. There's still stigma around condoms. Like, well, I'm clean. You know, it's like, when was the last time you got screened or like, Internal herpes can be passed without condoms. A lot of people don't know they have herpes or they don't want to talk about it. Um, So like barrier use is a big one that a lot of people are afraid to ask for. And then also I think a lot of males assume that female people are on birth control like most of the time. I don't know why. I've I've also told people like, by the way, I am not on the pill. So condoms. Um, But a lot of folks are, yeah, really afraid to like bring that up. And so that can be, again, like ideally we always want to be hundred percent comfortable with the people we're having sex with. But realistically, I hear from a lot of folks who are not. Yeah. Yeah. I think at the end of the day, like those, there's so much shame, right? Still, even if we identify as sex positive or we, we tend to think that we're great at having these conversations when it comes down to it. Um, people have, you know, trauma responses. They're afraid of being rejected. They're afraid of being judged. Um, mm-hmm. They're afraid, especially if you're socialized as a woman, you're, we're afraid of um, not being seen as sexy or acceptable or digestible. So if asking a partner to wear a condom seems really unsexy, that actually might translate as feeling like unsafe for us in the moment. Mm, good reminders. Uh, Let's see. Let's do a couple more of these. Someone says, I have sober sex so I can be present. Otherwise, it's a sign that I personally don't feel safe with that person. That's interesting. So this person says that they were drinking to, it sounds like numb or like turn off some red flags. I've done that before. Yeah, totally. I mean, especially if there's any kind of trauma there, it's like... Yeah, how can we uh, how can we make this feel as easy as possible, and um, you know, numb out all the the, the triggers or the self doubt, right? Especially with body image issues. Like if you're intoxicated, it can be a lot easier to be naked in front of someone. Hmm. Ask the strippers how they know. <laughs> right. I'm sure. Yeah. <laughs> right. Um, okay. So let's let's uh, move forward. And I also asked my followers. And folks and total strangers on the internet. I said, what unethical conduct have you either experienced, engaged in, or witnessed? Um, I say sometimes that all of my episodes are potential like trigger warnings. So there could be some sexual violence here. Uh, Let's see. Someone says, I've had someone try to be slick and not use a condom without asking first. (laughs) Their language, try to be slick. Mm -hmm. Isn't that called stealthing? Yes, stealthing is illegal in a couple states now. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, those laws are might be kind of tough to prove. Uh, I mean, how do we address rape culture by slapping harsher penalties on people who might have offended? I don't think that's the answer, but I don't know. Uh, we're trying to do preventative education here so that we have less of these potential conflicts. Mm-hmm. Um. Someone says being slapped during rough sex when that was not previously discussed. I've had that happen. Mm-hmm. 
I do like being slapped, but I have to initiate it and know that it's something that is on the table. Absolutely. I mean, that's to me, that's like basic consent 101. Like we don't just go around slapping people in or out of the bedroom <laughs> without asking first. <laughs> mm-hmm. Absolutely. Uh, someone says cheating. Uh, cheating is such a loaded word and I don't automatically um, assume like I don't have bad faith assumptions about people who have sex outside of their relationships like cheating. I've done it. I've had it done to me. It can be so hurtful. It can be risky, you know, health risky, emotionally dangerous. Um, Let's acknowledge there's a lot of reasons why people in our cultures try to get their needs met without communicating them. Mm -hmm. Um, But yeah, there are folks that will absolutely lie because it's fun for them. Mm -hmm. Um, Someone says, being penetrated before someone asked me. Mm. Uh, yeah, yeah, that's that's sexual assault. I mean, essentially, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, someone says, I used to make excuses for the men who raped me and would say they didn't. Um, it was normalized growing up around me. Everyone normalized men, especially those who were sexually assaulting women. That sounds like a horrible history. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's really, that's horrible. And that's... That's a snippet of what rape culture looks like right mm-hmm. there. Mm-hmm. Uh, someone said, I've experienced biphobia and masturbation shaming. Hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Someone says, one penis policies. <laughs> Do you know what a one penis policy is? No, I don't. You've heard of this probably. So polyamorous communities, if you follow any of the forums long enough, you'll see that it can be a common problem where so-called polyamorous couples have a one penis policy, which means that they can both fuck other women. Um, He's straight, so he's not interested in other cis men, but she's not allowed to have any other cis male partners or maybe any partners with penises at all. Mm, Got it. One penis policy. Right. Yikes. That's what I have to mm-hmm. say. Mm. Yikes. That's how you know our culture is obsessed with like male ownership, like phallic, like the dick is in, therefore it is mine. I cannot share no other dicks. There could be only one. Right. And it reminds me a lot of, of um, when cis men or cis straight men are in relationships with queer women. Um, and they'll be like, well, I'm not threatened if you want to sleep with other women Mm-hmm. You know, that's hot, right? There's like that's a really mm-hmm. common narrative, and that can actually be so so harmful and <laughs> just really devalues queerness, right? Because mm-hmm. it's saying, "Well, I'm not threatened by you sleeping with other women," because I actually what that really says is like I don't actually you know view that as a threat because I don't view that as something that's real. Yeah, I don't see that as legitimate enough. Yeah. Oh, definitely. Yeah, that can be really, really stressful. And also then you're pressuring your partner to perform like kind of like for male gaze sexuality if it's happening at all. Right. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, that's a thing if some people hadn't heard. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, let's see. Someone says, I have slut shamed myself for mistakes I made as a teen. Relatable. Um, yeah. Someone says, I've cheated a lot. It's what led me to non-monogamy and my best relationship yet. All right. See? Beautiful. Love that story. Mm-hmm. Uh, someone says, I was the other woman unknowingly for six months. Then I stayed. <laughs> mm. 
no judgment. Hey, maybe you guys were, were a great match. Yeah. Long-term affair with a married man. Oh, here's one. Someone says, as an exhibitionist, I have routinely fucked in places where unconsenting people would see. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's we can great. acknowledge how that can be dangerous. Right. Like, again, ethical, definite gray area. Well, I wouldn't even say gray area. That's pretty basically non-consent, non-consensual. Mm-hmm. You know, people mm-hmm. don't are consenting to that. I... When I first moved to Portland, there was this family that lived underneath me and my husband. And when the, the it was like young adult son. And uh, when the parents were out of town for a weekend doing, I don't know what, the son had a girlfriend over. And I know that because there was loud sex noises only from her mm-hmm. uh, for like a day and a half. And there were children playing all around in the yard. And I'm totally a voyeur and I love hearing people have sex. Number one, I think it was utterly performative. And I'm like, come on come on, you're just thrusting for like 18 hours. Give me a fucking break. <laughs> um, I'm like, I know what a fake orgasm sounds like. Anyway, I feel bad for her. I hope she's having a good time, but I think it's bullshit. Anyway, so I'm hearing this like porny ass, cheesy ass shit for like a day, but there's kids playing outside. And I actually went down and banged on the door and put notes on the door. Like, it's cool that you're boning, but kids can hear you. Mm-hmm. And if you don't know what that is, it can sound really violent and scary. Absolutely. I try to keep it down. You know, the only time I wasn't able to keep it down and I was kind of okay with it was when I was filming porn on the 23rd floor of a really fancy hotel on New Year's. And I could hear a couple, kind of hear like a couple drunk adults in the hallway. And uh, I was in like filming zone. So I'm like, oh, crap, I have to be camera aware. I'm going to try to lower my voice. But also part of me wanted to be a little bit louder so that you wouldn't hear the drunk adults. But you could hear one of them. They're like, are they okay?" And then the other one's like, oh, they're fucking. (laughs) (laughs) And then they went in the next room and like drank and like partied really loudly. So I was like, "Okay." (laughs) Um, And I almost felt bad about that. But like in general, even then, like, I don't know if I'm triggering someone's trauma. They don't want to hear that. Right, right. Totally. Area. Mm-hmm. That was my long stories. Um, someone says, clients have made sexual comments while I have massaged them. One client jumped off the table and yelled at me, being a massage uh, therapist sounds stressful. Yeah, you're, yeah, I, that's a whole nother, yeah, I'm, I'm, that must be really tough, like in the solicitation, like if you're not a sex worker, massage therapist, and you're just a non-sexual massage therapist, I'm wondering how difficult that must be, just mm-hmm. how often they get, um, you know, advances that are mm-hmm. non-consensual. Mm-hmm. And it would be so great if massage therapists who got uncon- like non-consensual advances or solicitations and not necessarily from people who want to hurt them, but folks that are like, I don't know where to go for a hand job. Like, I don't want to offend you. But and I get this question from clients. They're like, how do I ask for like a happy ending? I'm like, I don't know, man. I wish they would decriminalize sex work and then these venues could exist and then they could refer you. <laughs> right, right. Like maybe maybe these like non-sexual massage therapists could just have that information on deck. Like, mm-hmm. you know, like here's three referrals <laughs> for, mm-hmm. for, yep, for yep. a low job or a happy ending. Yeah. Yep. Don't bother me again. Go get it there. And also maybe I'll get a kickback or a commission. (laughs) Referral. Um, Bonus. Okay. So a couple more of these. Um, Someone says, I have not disclosed my HSV2 status to a hookup. So herpes simplex 2, that's really common. That's something a lot of people still ask, like, do I, should I? Right. And HSV2, I always get them mixed up, is... um, That's the genital genital. one. Okay. I was going to say, I feel like there's a lot of gray area with HSV1. You know, if it's... Because I know you can get HSV1 on your mouth or on your genitals. And your genitals. Vice versa with Mm -hmm. HSV2, right? 
Right. So, so if you have an active sore, yeah. you don't want to put an active sore in another mucous membrane. Right. So I get, um, I have HSV1, mm-hmm. I get cold sores and I do tell, this is interesting now that I reflect on it. I made out with a lady at a party like a, several months ago and I didn't disclose to her, interestingly enough. Um, but I always tell partners if I know I'm going to have like sex with them otherwise Mm -hmm. i'm like oh by the way i have hsv1 i've gotten sores since i was a kid i haven't had any in like two months or six months or a year and also none of my exes have ever gotten hsv1 or they've never had an outbreak like my two ex-husbands i smooched them all the time i never did it with an open sore Mm -hmm. and i've never had anyone tell me after the fact like hey i started getting cold sores now and i never got them so transmission's pretty low if you don't have an active sore but it's not impossible Right. That's, that's what I've heard as well. And I've also heard, and I, again, like this might be old science or hearsay, but something I've heard is that most people, it's like 80% of people have like the virus inside of them, but don't get a certain percentage of those people don't get outbreaks at all. And a certain Mm -hmm. percentage of those people who have the virus do get outbreaks. Mm -hmm. Yeah. The estimates I've read are like, depending and it's it's a lot of it's unknown because STI screenings typically don't screen for it. And if they do, it might not be accurate. This It's tough to like screen for HSV, apparently, and to know what type. It's impossible to know when you got it. But 50 to 80 percent of the American population will or has a type of HSV at any time. Mm-hmm. Um there's a great episode. So the herpes in relationships episode in uh, season one, talk to Courtney Brame and you can look up something positive for positive people.org, which is S P P F P P.org. I think I got that right. And he has a lot more updated science, but um, I would say in this day and age, it would be real sex positive to disclose to every single person like, oh, by the way, I have HSV2, I'm on this medication or not, we can use a condom. Um, and the answers Courtney says you'll get is either I have it too. I don't know that I have it, but like, I'm curious or I don't think I have it. I've never had an outbreak, but tell me more. And then no, thank you. So he's like, really, your odds are more in favor. <laughs> Two out of three. Right. Oh, I love that perspective. Yeah. Right. Right. Okay. So last one, someone says... At the very first sex party I went to, a stranger grabbed my butt while I was playing with my partner. Mm. Yeah. Not okay. Don't do that. That's terrible. Yeah. yeah so don't do that, people. Um, I tell new strippers as often if I ever can, like not that they're asking for my advice, but if a new stripper's like, hey, I'm new and like any help, any tips? I'm like, sure, I got you. <laughs> Here's one. Never bend over or spread your legs or your pussy without looking in the mirror to see behind you or looking between your legs because somebody will try to put something in you or lick you. I've seen it happen multiple times. I've heard it happening multiple times. I've had it happen to me. Um, Ugh, and that makes me so angry. And I'm not surprised mm-hmm. at all somehow. Mm-hmm. Yep. Because you hear, I know why, because you hear people's horror stories all the time. I do. And also <laughs> I have, you know, been to strip clubs and I have seen yep. bad behavior. I used to live in New Orleans and the strip club, club culture down there is really different than here in, in Portland. Um, mm-hmm. There's a lot more. Well, I was, I was in college when I lived in New Orleans. So that was, you know, years ago, but um, yeah, the, 
there was a lot more touching and just, you know, mm-hmm. I got pulled it's up. It's wilder, I've heard. Oh, so wild. I got pulled up on stage by a stripper one time. And I mean, it was wild. It, it, so just, Were you okay with that? At the time, I, lo- I mean, I loved it. I was like, yes. Okay, good, good. <laughs> but because sometimes... No- People don't. Right. Yes. And that's the other thing. Totally. Strippers got to check in. (laughs) Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So it's just the boundary stuff is, you know, there's cultural differences and geographical differences and personal preferences, Mm -hmm. I guess. Right. But Mm -hmm. that's a whole nother tangent. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Oh, totally. I love working with people from other places. I just... I mean, I'll never know, but like I worked with a gal uh, who's from New Orleans and she talks about it all the time. Uh, shout out to at X recently. I don't even know how long she'll be there because that's the thing. People come and go. But she has like this like long, like one of those tickle feather things. And she was all in red and she was like tickling customers and then like tickling her inner thighs. And I'm a germaphobe. So I'm like, when was the last time that thing was cleaned? But <laughs> people fucking love it. And she's like high energy. And she's like, oh, yeah, New Orleans. And I was like, yeah, I can tell you're not from here. <laughs> yeah, really different. Yeah. Uh, All right. So let's take a break. Hey, if you have a sensitive vulva, don't be ashamed. So do I. I love using the salve by Momotaro Apotheca. That's M-O-M-O-T-A-R-O apotheca.com. Check out their sister company, Oshihana. Dot com for some CBD related products. And I'm not the only one. I asked folks what they thought. Someone says, I love the salve for everything after shaving, after sex, if I feel a little off down there after anal. Someone else says, the salve is a personal favorite. I'm currently pregnant and use it for perennial massage. So that's great to hear. Use code stripperwriter. Hey, that's me on momotaroapotheca.com or oshihana.com. Welcome back to They Talk Sex podcast. This is the ethics and sexuality episode. Our guest is Margaret King, LPC. Uh, She is in Portland, Oregon, and she specializes in trauma and mindfulness. And she is a supporter of decriminalization of sex work, which not all of my contacts are, but eventually they are. And you were when we met. So that was fabulous. <laughs> I love I love meeting people that are like, hey, I get this thing. And I'm like, yes, I don't have to explain it. <laughs> you know, and I did have to learn the, and I think maybe a lot of people have to learn the difference between mm. um, legalization and decriminalization. Mm-hmm. And we can do a real quick rundown. Um, if you are a brothel working escort in certain counties of Nevada, you are allowed to work in the brothel. You are allowed to make your living in the brothel. You're allowed to go to the brothel, but you need identification and your social security number and you are working there. And for people who don't have stuff like that, like transportation or documents, or they're not going to get hired because they don't fit what the venue wants them to look like, you are still going to have to work sex out of anywhere you can. And that could be where you live, where the client lives, on the street, out of cars, and that's still arrestable and considered a crime. So legalization gives more support to people with more resources anyway, and it screws over everybody who's still marginalized. Uh, So full decriminalization means that people would no longer be arrestable for buying sex or selling sex. 
Um, however, you can still maintain the consent laws around like 18 and under. So it would still be considered exploitation um, or like trafficking of a minor to either buy from a minor or transport them across the state lines for the business of having sex or doing something else illegal. Hopefully that makes sense to a lot of people. So please advocate for decriminalization and not legalization. Yes. Yeah. Also, I don't want crazy wild restrictions put on me like, oh, you have to register as a sex worker in Portland, Oregon. And that means your information goes in a file somewhere to what some city worker can see it. No fucking thank you. Right. Yeah. It's right. actually not as you, pr- you don't get as much control over your safety. Right. Or mm-hmm. your privacy. Right. Or if the government, which they've done before, the American government decides that I'm a safety risk. Um for like, you know, as a vector for STIs, then they might mandate like regular STI screenings, which might sound good to some people. But remember, if it's decriminalized and the resources are available, my whore ass will just go to the clinic myself and not be afraid to talk to the providers about what I do and report honestly. Um, So yeah, people say legalization as if it like gives us more power, but it doesn't. It gives more regulation power to the authorities. We don't need that. So thank you for bringing that up, Margaret. Yeah, I think it's such an important um, conversation and it's, you know, semantics like like you hear legalization and you hear, oh, good. But, you know, it's more nuanced. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. So we're going to talk more about (laughs) ethics and sex. Uh, People find Margaret at attunementpsychotherapy.com. You can email her. Don't waste your time. Attunementpsychotherapy at gmail.com. So let's dive into listener questions. Okay. Listener question one. I've heard that rope play can be healing for survivors of sexual assault, but no one has explained the connection. Can you? And related, I got another question I thought I'd put right in there. I have thought about rope play as a trust exercise, but I haven't ventured. I I love those questions. Um, and... I want to say I'm not an expert at, you know, at rope play. Um, so Me neither. <laughs> <laughs> that's yeah. It, but from what I know, I mean, I'll just speak, speak generally about what I know um, about how kink and how se- the sexual space can be a healing space. Right. We think mm-hmm. of sex or kink as just being fun and pleasurable, playful. And it and it is those things, right? If done well, but it's also an opportunity to actually create healing in our bodies and our nervous systems. So for example, if someone has sexual trauma where they felt disempowered, maybe they went into a freeze response, right? We, when we think about fight, flight, or freeze, the survival response. Yeah. Or fawn. Exactly. Um, Fawn is a huge one, especially um, for people socialized as women. Um, Mm. So let's let's say someone had a, a really traumatic sexual experience where they felt deeply disempowered or there was um, frozen tra- a tra- frozen trauma response stuck in their body. Kink, for example, could give someone uh, or let's say, you know, a power play could give someone the opportunity to complete the cycle, so to speak. So complete the stress cycle in the body. So if that person who felt deeply disempowered, frozen, um, and traumatized now gets the opportunity to safely and consensually 
maybe B, this is just an example, be in the um, kind of opposite position. Maybe they're the dom or the um, the person who, you know, is holding the whip or is tying the ropes. Um, or topping from the bottom. Right. So if, if you're the sub and you're like, oh, no, don't hold me down. No, <laughs> please don't take my pants off. And like, I want you to hold me down and take my pants off. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. So exactly. Like, and, and so any, any place of power that that person person, that person who's experienced trauma wants to explore could actually give their nervous system the opportunity to have a healing and reparative experience. So mm-hmm. just like, you know, um, I love this example. If a deer is chased by like, let's say a wolf and like that deer barely, you know, is barely gets to safety. They're like, whew, oh my God, that wolf almost ate me alive. Th- the deer will go into the woods and shake and complete the cycle of stress, right? So they'll hmm. shake all that adrenaline, cortisol off and allow their body to come back into regulation. Hmm. So the same as we're, we're also animals, right? We have to complete the cycle of stress. And so kink can be, you know, if done well with great communication, with awesome safety, consent, um, you know, mm-hmm. set, trust. setting, trust, all of that can be an incredibly powerful healing tool for people. Mm-hmm. I think um, what's coming to mind is that reliability and trust like with your partner about your partner is so much more important than how sexy you think your partner is. Yes. To some degree, like anybody can be attractive to anybody else, but how do they hear what you're saying and then do something to make you either feel better or feel good? Um, Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Safety is, I mean, you know, that catchphrase consent is sexy. Um, I mean, yes, consent, sexy. Problematic phrase, right. Uh, that we used to say. Yeah. Totally. <laughs> like, yeah, it's sexy, no. but it's like <laughs> it's necessary. It's the bare minimum, right? right. Um, but yeah, I think like, you know, and then this is maybe another tangent, but talking about what you want sexually or what you're, what you want your partner to do to you is really hot. Like that's Mm -hmm. basically dirty talk. Consent talk can just be dirty talk. Mm -hmm. I, to give example, because we don't see a lot of examples because we see, we see TV and porn, which is performative, but some of the sexiest stuff is going to be in the container of how you two actually communicate, which isn't going to make sense to the rest of the world. So uh, to give example, I was feeling really, really shy about something and I was cuddling with uh, recent uh, my new lover. And, you know, f- again, for listeners, I had four and a half years with a partner who died. So I've learned to like, okay, I have to rebuild and check in and discover about this new person. And so I'm still learning and I don't know what's comfortable yet. So I'm, I'm feeling all shy and I'm like under the blankets and I like kind of pop my head up and I'm like, I would really like it if you would look me in the face like a little bit more and like slap me a little bit more sometimes. And I like darted back underneath. <laughs> I was like, and I'm like under there and he's like, mm-hmm. I was like, is that something you could do for me? And he's like, mm-hmm. And that was like, the, I was like, okay. That's the entire conversation. Yeah, right. And it, like in your sex worker and even sometimes naming those things are, are those needs can make you feel a little shy or like a little vulnerable. There's like parts of yourself I'm imagining that pop up mm-hmm. and feel shy about it. That's totally mm-hmm. normal. Mm-hmm. So that's normal for everybody. And that that's that happens for sex workers, too, and entertainers, of course. Um, I thought it was interesting that so the two questions are about rope play, but it doesn't have to be rope play. You know, anything where there's like trust, it could be breath play is dangerous. Don't like jump straight to breath play. But 
if you're tying someone, if you are holding razor blades to each other, like it can be so sexy to have that trust. And then if you don't have that trust, it's not sexy. It's fucking terrifying. <laughs> trust is everything. Yeah, it, it is everything. And I mean, that's the container. Like even as a therapist, um, I tell people, you don't ever have to share things with me until you feel like there's trust here. Like we need to build safety. We need to build a rapport um, like any other relationship. You know, I don't expect you to dump everything out onto me. By the way, I'm not saying trauma dumping. I know there was a lot of um, backlash about a therapist on TikTok who was like, my clients are trauma dumping on me, which I think oh, is Jesus. super problematic, but yeah. I digress. Um, huh. I don't expect people to just jump in and trust me right away. Like trust has to be earned and built. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yep. For therapists, for partners, for sex workers. Like if I tell you this little thing and you react badly to it or you share it with someone else, like without my permission, that shows me I'm not ready to share bigger things with you or anything else. Maybe. <laughs> right. Yes. Yeah. We, right. we have to test safety. Like we're always kind of, you know, especially those of us who've experienced trauma, it's like, you know, you have to you have to test to see where does the safety lie? Where are the boundaries here? And what am, what's safe moment by moment? Mm -hmm. Someone else says, okay, listener question two. Does anyone else find self-mutilation healing and or erotic? Like piercing instead of adult self-harm? I had to stick this in here because so much of what we do to our bodies is like, erotic self-harm like tattoos and piercing like yeah. a lot of body mods can be very cathartic for people and that would be part of it absolutely i mean it's your body you know if you're aware if you're like yep i'm going to get a tattoo today and you know you're checking in with yourself you're like yep i've wanted this or maybe i'm just this is harm reduction instead of using razor blades on my thighs or my wrist i'm getting a tattoo um it's mm -hmm. your body you get to decide what feels good and how you want it to look you have control mm -hmm. over that mm -hmm. yeah it's come up before um uh, my previous podcast, Strange Bedfellows, with a uh, tattoo artist, Alice Carrier from Portland. And we talked about how for some people, like choosing to modify their bodies was how they grew away from cutting because you still get that like, ouch, this is fucking terrible pain feeling, but you're beautifying something or feel like, again, you're rewriting the script. Yeah. I think, th mm -hmm. I think that's really empowering and, and we all have different ways of coping and to find a coping strategy that works best for you is a gift. Mm -hmm. uh, there are inherent risks to any kind of self-mutilation. Um, I mean, whether you're beating your head against the wall, cause I've seen people that's like how they blow off their stress and I'm like, Oh, scary. Um, I'm not saying this is healthy. I'm not saying it's unhealthy. I'm saying that the two people I know and the only time I beat my head against something, I was not doing well. <laughs> um, uh, trying to think of other examples of self-mutilation or like cutting again, like there's a risk anytime you open your body, right. uh, will it get infected? You know, I'm not saying it's wrong, but we have to acknowledge the risks. Yes. Acknowledging the risks is, is huge, right? And, and that's what I do with people who self-harm. I make sure, um, okay, step by step, I'm not going to take this away from you until we come up with other things you can replace it with. Um, mm -hmm. How can you do this safely until we can come up with a way that you can, you know, again, replace that with something that feels a little bit more self-loving or... Um, because, yeah, right, like it can get infected. You could cut too deep. 
you can end up dying um, if that's not your intention, right? Mm-hmm, so, yeah, acknowledging that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, um, you know, it's not something I'd ever obviously recommend to someone to, to try. But again, like there's there's ways that people need to self-soothe and get through what they're going through. Um, and mm-hmm. the idea, hopefully, like ultimately there, you know, you would come up with coping mechanisms that actually are nurturing and loving and compassionate toward yourself because at the end of the day, cutting yourself like, you know, infection and physiological damage aside, the message that that's sending to your system is like, you deserve, you know, to be cut or you deserve to be harmed. Mm. Something that works really well for me when I want to just blow off a bunch of energy is I just like run (laughs) for like mm, maybe only about 45 seconds. I run really, really fast and hard down my street, even if I'm just like wearing sweatpants and like crazy shoes and a hoodie. I'm like, okay, I'm about to have a meltdown. I need to blow off some energy. And like, I can do that. Some people don't have access. They can't go outside if they live in a building or whatever. But like, can you climb some stairs, do some jumping jacks, push-ups? Like, what do you need to do to get some adrenaline in your body just to blow off some steam? Yeah. Absolutely. You said the word replacement earlier. How do we replace maybe some of these harmful activities with right. yeah. Ones? Yeah. So like, and I think the the most important thing is identifying like, what are you getting out of the self-harm? Like, what is, what is the relief that you're getting? And then that's great information saying, okay, well, what else could give you that relief that might, you know, feel a little safer? Mm-hmm. This is why a lot of people who become sober uh, get into like fitness. <laughs> They're like, I am a gym rat because I need to exercise or move for three hours every single day or I will do drugs or drink, you know, yeah, <laughs> like, totally. that's real. That's real. Yeah, real. Okay. Listener question three. This one was hard for me. I don't know these terms. You are the LPC. Maybe you do. How do I know? Well, I know these terms, but I don't feel comfortable talking about trauma bonding. How do I know if the play is healing or if it's just a reenactment of trauma bonding? I think I understand the question. Like the, the person is asking, am I perhaps participating in rewriting the script or am I perpetuating harmful scripts is what I'm hearing. Oh, I think that's, wow. That's really important to, to bring up. Um, I don't have uh, like a cookie cutter answer for that. I think, mm, I think checking in with your intentions with, you know, your old, your old patterns and your trauma, like that's an individual thing first, like, mm, okay, what are, what are the things I've experienced that have caused me harm? And then am I replaying that with this person? Is that what's going on here? How does it feel in my body? So, mm-hmm. right. Like checking with yourself and then maybe having that conversation with your, your play partner, um, Hey, like, how's this feeling for you? Do you feel like, is there part of you that feels icky about it? And so Mm. summarizing that I would say checking in with intention and with your body, how does your body respond before, during, after the, the act and Mm. that's information. If anyone can do this, I just recently had this conversation again with new lover. I said, you know, I still don't feel secure in this relationship. And he was like, oh, I was like, do you? He's like, yes. And I said, okay, good. I said, let me know if that changes. Uh, I said, I know like some of my work and my life can bring up like insecurities or like confusion for people. So let me know. And he's like, mm-hmm. And I said, you know, part of the reason I don't feel secure is because I have a ton of abandonment issues due to like history and then like Brian dying, I felt left. Yeah. Um, and I have, you know, resentments that I understand. And I said, and the other part of it is like, sometimes you're really unpredictable with your text messages. <laughs> 
or like your communication isn't incredibly specific. And he's he's like, mm-hmm. And he starts laughing. I mean, you're you're getting a picture here. He's the mm-hmm person. <laughs> yeah. So it was helpful for me to be like naming it. And I understand a lot of people can't do that. Uh, but I felt like I could. So that's what that can look like in practice. It is possible to bring up incompatibilities that aren't necessarily toxic, but two people just behave differently and have different history. Absolutely. You have, I mean, you have to talk about it at some point. Um, yeah, usually I just tell people like practice talking as much as possible about what's going on and what your needs are. Um, if you can just name them and communicate them, um, even if it's uncomfortable, that's an amazing step. Mm -hmm. Cause the person's going to be able to hang with it or they won't. Yeah. And that can be scary for people. They're like, I don't want to find out if they can't hang. Well, then you're going to keep doing what you're doing until it's not going to work anymore. <laughs> right. Yeah. Or maybe like, it does. Right. If you don't want to waste your time, you got to figure out like, what's this person about? And, you know, share who you are with that person early on. So there's no mm -hmm. secret. I mean, of course, we all have our things that take time to open up about. But ultimately, like, you know, your your um, your list of, of things that you need in a relationship, like get to know if that person checks the boxes. Mm -hmm. Listener question four, my partner is disinterested in my yearning to try kink for my own healing purposes. What are your thoughts on this? Or what signs indicate that someone is ready to explore kink? Mm, well, I want to answer that last part first. Um, mm -hmm. I, I think it's really important to not assume or look for indicators, but just ask. Um, we should ask directly like, hey, wh mm. where do you stand on this? Um, you know, I think, yeah, it makes sense to want to like look for cues or indicators. But what about being direct? That might actually mm. get you the answer more quickly. Mm -hmm. um, and, and secondly, um, that's tough. I think, you know, um, if someone is not open to trying um, a sexual act with you, then, you know, we can't, we can't force people or push them to, to want to try things they're not ready to try. Mm -hmm. um, or have no interest in. Right. Um, yeah. Yeah. So maybe, maybe, maybe opening up the relationship is a conversation to have there. Um, maybe hiring a sex worker is, is an option there. Um, if you can find one, good luck. It's a crime. Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. yeah. Um, yeah, this is a tough one because what you said at the very beginning of the episode, you said case by case basis. So there's going to be many different reasons why your partner might not be interested. Maybe it turns them off, which is unfortunate and can make people feel bad. I've definitely had a couple things I was into that folks are like, uh, I don't really get that or I think that's weird. They didn't know I was into it. <laughs> um <laughs> But asking is great. Like, hey, do you know anything about spanking? Um, how would you feel about maybe trying to learn how to tie me up sometime? Uh, asking is great. Yeah, and, going to an event or watching a YouTube tutorial together, like about how to do it safely and, you know, intro to kink or whatever. And it can be more of a together thing if, if you're both open to it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, a big mistake I think a lot of us make um, because it's what's presented to us is we seek out, I think, other models for like, how should I do kink? But like, really, like, how do you want to play is what people could ask themselves instead. Totally. I love that. Yeah. Uh, okay, let's see. Last one. What's a good way to start out 
without feeling unsafe or triggering trauma. I think they mean kink play. What's a good way to start out with kink play without feeling unsafe or triggering trauma? Well, you might trigger trauma. Mm-hmm. Ideally, you don't feel unsafe, but a good way to start out is, I think, to determine who's going to be leading the scene. Mm-hmm. I'm usually the one who says, this is what I need. This is what I cannot have. How do you feel about that? Good. All right, cool. <laughs> do you have any needs? Oh, nope. Okay. Yes, no. Um, the person with more trauma should be the one that's calling the shots because otherwise, what is it for? Right. Yeah. I I would just say like heavy on the communication up front, like front load the communication hardcore, like come up with a plan. If someone does get triggered, what does that look like? Um, you know, what's, what's like the, the aftercare plan for if someone is really struggling, right? Like the trauma does get brought up. So I would Mm -hmm. say just communicate heavily beforehand about um, the what ifs and the the safe words, the everything. Mm -hmm. My book recommendation, SM 101 by Jay Wiseman, there's a short form negotiation sheet and there's some long forms that covers up all, covers all kinds of stuff like hygiene, health, safety, location, safe words, um, emergency supplies, health conditions, you know, hard limits, um, check-in time. And also these, these are a series of ongoing conversations, just like anything else. So it's not like you have the one like boundary talk and then you're off like playing in BDSM heaven with your partner forever. It's like constant learning. Right. So there can be like, oh, I thought this was going to be a good idea, but maybe it's not, or I'm not ready, or we did something differently than we will next time. Give yourself some grace and forgiveness because it's a learning curve. Right. And and maybe have some more vanilla sex where you get to practice saying no so that there's the stakes are maybe lower. This is just a thought I'm having. Like hmm. if saying no or saying stop is hard for you, right? Then then knowing that about yourself and practicing it before getting into the more like new territory could be helpful. Yeah. Um, what I'm hearing is if you don't already feel confident enough or secure enough with the vanilla sex you're having, then you perhaps might not be ready to expand to more complex role play. Right. Maybe. Yeah. Yeah. Again, case by case basis. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. All right. So let's take another break. Hey, are you going somewhere and you don't want to ruin Airbnb sheets or hotel bedding or one night stands or clients furniture? If you're on your period, if you're a squirter, if you have a healing tattoo, or if you're just trying to be polite, it's more than a sex blanket. Getthelayer.com. It's black. It's discreet. You can get 10% off when you use the code L on getthelair.com. This is great for cam girls, for people traveling, for people dealing with colostomy bags, for people that just don't want to sleep in the wet spot. Getthelair.com. Code L. Welcome back to They Talk Sex podcast. Thank you to our sponsors. Check out our cute little website, theytalksex.com. You'll see places to buy some products. Uh, Ethical disclaimer, on some of those products, I receive a commission. So if you don't agree with that, then you're still very encouraged to use those products. Just don't use the discount codes. Uh, But I am 
obligated and required to state that I receive a little money from some recommendations. Uh, but you guys know I don't share shit. So go to my website, lstanger.com. You can see previous writings and events. If you're curious about a topic like sex-positive parenting or decriminalization, type the word you're thinking of in the search box and you just might find it on there. Otherwise, email me lstanger at protonmail.com. All right. We are talking about ethics and sexuality with Margaret King, licensed professional counselor in Portland, Oregon. Hi again. Hi. Hi. And people can find you attunementpsychotherapy.com. So yes. you're leading, a, you're currently leading a therapy group for Swerkers, yeah? No, not for Swerkers, although I would love that. Um, I mm. am doing, I'm running a grief group right now. Um, mm, that's what it was. Yes. Grief yeah, group. we really, I think all of us, you know, grief is an umbrella term, obviously, or it's a, mm-hmm. it incorporates a whole lot of loss, but essentially I felt like a calling to run a group to hold space for all the grief that people are feeling due to mm-hmm. the pandemic. Mm-hmm. And and lots of local Portland issues and city state issues. I mean, people were pretty traumatized, like a ton of people's homes burned down a, a year and a half ago. We had massive fires. We have had massive fires. It seems like every summer since, I don't know, 2017. Um yeah, yeah, a lot of things. It's going a lot, on. and then you know, if if you were active in the activist world, you know, mm-hmm. during the height of the protests, like a lot, a lot of folks got super traumatized by mm-hmm. the police. Um, mm-hmm. Did you see me ranting about that on Instagram this morning? I did not. <laughs> oh, that's funny. Oh, that's funny. So, real quick, there was a. It came out that there was a slide. It was like this. Uh, it's this really hateful like poem about like beating up hippies and leftists. It's like some kind of like creepy cop prayer. Anyway, protest prayer thing that was apparently part of uh, or stuck into a, a training document for Portland Police Bureau. And uh, that just came out. So good luck trying to find the good old boy that stuck it in there. But the mayor is like, we're going to get to the root of this problem. And it's like uh, social conservatives and Trump supporters as police? No, good luck. You're not. Oh my <laughs> 88, gosh. 80 something percent of Portland police don't even live in Portland. They live in the surrounding areas. Mm-hmm. There was a lot of police brutality. What was it like? 6,000 documented um, uses of excessive force by the police out there. 6,000. Yeah. Um, it's, it's just unacceptable. That was when Brian was still alive. I definitely watched him get hit on with batons and we got sprayed and maced. And like, yeah, a lot of people who were out, we were fucking traumatized. Absolutely. I mean, how how could you not be, right? It's, uh, yeah. it was... Yes. um, So that's my rant. Yeah. I mean, there's just so much to say about it. There's so much to hold. I mean, between climate change, um, you know, what we were just Mm -hmm. discussing, uh, the pandemic, the election, uh, I mean, the fires, Mm -hmm. yeah, the smoke a couple of years ago was just, or it wasn't even two years ago. I mean, it's just, it's piled on. So Mm -hmm. we all need, and you know, from my perspective, we all just need as much, um, is as many safe spaces to feel our feelings and process the grief because this we're going to be feeling the, the trauma of all of this for many many years. It's mm-hmm. and so um, yeah, it's oh. so important to feel it. 
And what was compounded, I don't know if you recall this or if this was your experience, but as a local who was witnessing and then participating in protest or peaceful protest, to see a lot of the mainstream media blame fires and vandalism and violence on the leftist protesters when it was often the out-of-town conservatives that were driving here to harass people and throw shit at them and run them over or the cops doing it. So the big Antifa scare was a thing. Yeah. I had family members that were like, are you okay? Like Antifa. And I was like, (laughs) I'm okay. Yeah. yeah. When I go, I'm originally from South Carolina and when I've gone back um, to visit family, you know, people will, you know, friends of family or whatever will say like the same thing, right? They, they see the news mm-hmm. and they'll be like Antifa. And I'll be like, well, I, I mean, technically I am Antifa. So yeah, I'm- exactly. <laughs> like <laughs> like right. be afraid, be very afraid. I am anti-fascist. So if you mean, you know, the. Yeah. Should anyway. we not all be anti-fascist? Yeah. <laughs> right. Um, so yeah, a lot of people had to deal with a lot of, uh, Portland had to deal with a lot of scrutiny, like global scrutiny, I think a nationwide scrutiny and it wasn't accurate and it wasn't fair. And then, of course, we have to remember the populations that all of this was about in the first place. So black Portlanders, Portlanders of color that have been talking about and dealing with police brutality or neglect since they've existed for decades. And so it probably was. I saw this expressed from some people of color in Portland, frustrating and yet validating to be like, oh, a lot of people in a lot of leftist Democrats, white people are learning about police brutality and experiencing it for the first time. And they're acting shocked. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's a really important conversation to have and to listen to BIPOC people and their experiences um, is the most important piece of that. Mm -hmm. Like, LOL, at the soccer moms who didn't think they were going to get gassed because a ton of people got gassed and it radicalized a lot of people. So also follow up. Last thing we'll say, and we'll move on. Speaking of ethics. So Portland police is having a hell of a time recruiting new officers, new people who want to get involved Mm -hmm. because the public perception has shifted a little bit from those of us who were on the ground to witness some of the horrors. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And that radicalized people who weren't radical. And like you said, you know, originally Mm -hmm. that it really helped shift the perspective, which is important. Mm-hmm. So let's move back to the episode. <laughs> <laughs> so I asked my followers on ethics and sexuality again. I said, do your peers or culture express values different from other cultures? Of course they do. I said, how? Someone says, it is impossible to have any conversation with my conservative Midwestern family. Someone says, yes, in Portugal, my place of birth There is a long history with Roman Catholicism. The value of purity and prudency are highly regarded there for women. For most people, it runs at a subconscious level, but it's harmful for women and the LGBTQ community. Mm -hmm. Germany and France otherwise seem much more open to me and have less taboos about it. That's interesting. Interesting. Yeah, I think that's really helpful to to hear. I mean, we we get so stuck in, you know, the American-centric, perspective but i think mm-hmm. that that's a whole nother tangent that i would love to talk more about too and maybe another time about religiosity and mm-hmm. how religion and sexuality are you know just related there's a lot there, <laughs> a lot there right <laughs> right the uh you might like the dr sprinkle episode the satanism and sexuality one i learned a lot Ooh. and yes you and i could always talk more uh someone says uh-huh, uh-huh. 
I was once a pastor's wife. Now I am a polyamorous slut. Wow. That's arousing. (laughs) There you go. I am awake. (laughs) Wow. That is, I, I love hearing people's, I love, okay, I really love the crossover between like the religious sort of uptight prude sort of stereotype. And then like the, you know, there's the stereotype of like the the naughty Catholic girl, like the more buttoned up people seem like the more freaky they are. And I think there's a good reason why that's like a total, it's a really popular kink. This is why it's often the quiet ones. (laughs) What is it? Still waters run deep. (laughs) That's what they say. Um, okay. Someone says, I am non-monogamous and I always have been. My peers and culture is Christian monogamy. That's a big one in America. Yeah. That must be really hard to find support and, Mm -hmm. um, and have, you know, folks that they relate to in that way. Mm -hmm. Someone else says, I'm trying to talk to my friends about being polyamorous. It's not going over too well. Oh, well, they'll get it someday. Oh, Sounds like they're kind of resigned and feeling defeated, maybe. Someone else says, yes, everyone wants to be swingers. And I'd rather we have our affairs privately. In other words, I don't mind if my husband cheats, but I don't want to know her or fuck her or her partner. I've actually been shamed for this before by poly friends. I don't know if I understand that. Swingers have different rules than polyamorous people often. Yeah, I guess like what I heard, I mean, I, I there was some ambiguity there, but I'm, I heard that this person doesn't mind if their husband sleeps with other women, but she doesn't want to know about it. And uh, people don't the don't ask, don't tell that. that swingers do sometimes and polyamorous right. people do sometimes, but uh I mean, if that, if that works for you and yeah. that's agreed upon, like, yeah. I mean, a lot of times in polyamorous relationships, people are like, I, you know, I don't want to meet this person that you're sleeping with. I don't want to know details. And I think that's fine. If that's an agreement that you've come to and it works, then cool. Yeah. As long I, as you're being safe. Yeah, totally. Um, that's interesting. There's definitely, um, I would, I would hate to align myself with any scene ever. Um, but some people feel comfortable doing that. And I definitely see some differences from like play parties of swingers versus like polyamorous parties. And a lot of times the swinger stuff tends to be more hetero and more like don't ask, don't tell or with like specific guidelines. And this is not always the case, obviously, because polyamorous people can have guidelines too or just want really, really, really slow exposure. So for me, I start out with like, I don't need to meet them yet, but maybe have a brief text conversation or like know that they're screened. And then maybe down the road, we all hang out together and then maybe we'll play together. Maybe we won't, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, whatever works for you. Yeah. Okay. So what are some resources, Margaret, that have been helpful for your learning? Oh, man. Um, Well, first and foremost, I would say my own personal research, just in my own personal life, Um, you know, uh, conference, not conferences, but like trainings I've attended, kink events I've attended where I've learned a lot just from a personal perspective Um, in my own personal life, just with my own sex life, um, following certain people on Instagram, following you, I've learned so much from you over the years, um, Mm -hmm. following your, your presence. And, um, I'm trying to remember what her name is. And I think her name is Andrea. She's, Oh, she's the somatics, somatic therapist. I'm now I'm forgetting what her name is. Um, 
Yeah. Oh my gosh. She lives in New York. She's like, oh my God, is it the somatic witch? I think her name is Andrea, somatic witch. I followed her. Andrea Glick? Yeah, I think that's her. That's right. I took a training from her actually a couple years ago before the pandemic um, about kink and and trauma. So that's where I learned a good bit about. Is she younger and kind of tattooed? Yes. Yeah. Andrea Gutierrez Glick, licensed clinical social worker, therapist, writer and supervisor. Okay, so Andrea Glick, G-L-I-K dot com. Awesome. Yes. She had an awesome training that I took and that's where I kind of, it was a few years ago. Um, and yeah, it was really accessible, really affordable. Uh, that was super helpful to me and yeah, really social media following, um, you know, sex therapists, people who are sex positive, body positive, um, has been huge talking to friends, um, being an ally to sex workers, working with sex workers as clients. Um, I've just learned so much from, I think, you know, people who have lived experiences mm-hmm. with this stuff as well. Mm-hmm. And that's how we learn yeah. by interacting with the people who have lived experience. That's right. And reading. Some people don't like reading and that's fine. Some people don't yeah. like interacting with people either. And that's fine. That's why we have podcasts. So we just broke it down <laughs> for you. <laughs> yeah. And strange. I listened to several episodes of strange bedfellows and oh, then, rad. Um, I have the ethical slut on my bookshelf that is, I'm going to be reading it at some point. You know? Janet Hardy and Dossie Easton, a classic. <laughs> yes. Yeah. I never, ever get offended if someone says that they ha- don't listen to my podcast or they haven't, or maybe like an episode or two. I, full disclosure and no shame, I don't listen to podcasts. I don't have time. And also sometimes it's really irritating for me to listen to people talk, which is hugely ironic because I just love the sound of my own voice. Okay. Uh, so yeah, if anyone's like, I'm not familiar, it's okay. Thank you for listening to this episode. You can find Margaret on attunementpsychotherapy.com. Thank you so much for coming on this episode. Yes, this has been so much fun. I love talking about sex, sexuality, and humans. So it's been a blast. Thank you so much for having me. Mm -hmm. I'll see you on the internet. All right. Take care.